Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 7, Episode 12, The Mongol Invasions of Japan. Chosen by the Mandate of Heaven, the great Mongol emperor sends this letter to the king of Japan. The sovereigns of small countries sharing borders with each other have for a long time wanted to communicate with each other to encourage friendly relations. Especially since my ancestor governed at Heaven's commands, innumerable countries from afar disputed our power and slighted our virtue. Gorya rendered thanks for my ceasefire and for restoring their land and people when I ascended the throne. Our relationship is feudatory, like a father and son. We think you already know this. Gorya is my eastern tributary. Japan has been allied with Gorya and sometimes with China since the founding of your country. However, Japan has never dispatched ambassadors since I ascended the throne. We are afraid that your kingdom has yet to do this. Hence, we dispatched a mission with our letter particularly expressing our wishes. Let us enter into friendly relations with each other from now on. We think all countries belong to one family. How are we in the right unless we comprehend this? Nobody would wish to resort to arms. The shogun's regent Hojo Masamura probably read this letter with great anxiety in early 1268. He had held the office of Shikken for four years, and at the age of 63, he was more than ready to retire by now. The developments on the Asian mainland were not entirely unknown to authorities in Japan, and they were especially concerned with the reports they had been receiving from spies in Korea. How much they knew about the Mongols' further conquests throughout the world, we can't be sure, but they knew enough to be rightfully frightened. The 1260s was a bad decade for the Japanese. Famines, disease epidemics, storms, earthquakes, and other natural disasters made life miserable for common people and the ruling class alike. The shogunate especially was terrified of the potential for a mass uprising, as very little of its effort to mitigate the suffering seemed to have any effect. Combine this with the rise of Nichiren, who predicted that Japan would be invaded by a foreign army, and you have a potential recipe for upheaval. The Heian court, meanwhile, had a choice between providing unflinching support of the warrior class who might be called upon to defend the nation, or just completely losing their minds in blind panic. Want to guess which one they chose? That's right, blind panic. As far as the Kuge leadership in the old capital was concerned, Hannibal was at the gates, and it would be a matter of time before they were all enslaved. This is not to say that Kamakura was calm by contrast. Members of the shogunate were likewise terrified to imagine what horrors they might be subjected to in such an invasion. You may recall from last season that in 1019, a gang of Jurchen pirates made several landings on and around northern Kyushu and reportedly slaughtered many Japanese men, kidnapping hundreds of Japanese women to sell as slaves and killed a provincial governor in the process. Though this matter was resolved without protracted conflict by chasing the pirates away, the incident continued to loom large in the minds of Japanese leadership 
because of how much it highlighted their vulnerability. It seemed as though foreign invaders could easily land and kidnap their people at will. On the Mongol Empire side, Kublai Khan had been repeatedly frustrated by the difficulties encountered by his envoys. He had tried to send them in 1266, but their ships had to turn back due to rough seas. The second attempt in 1268 reached Dezai Fortress, who passed along the letters to Kamakura, but did not allow the envoys to enter the country. The letter was addressed to the king of Japan, but it was forwarded first to Kamakura, who then passed it along to Heian Kyo when they had finished discussing it. Shortly after this letter arrived, the sitting regent Hojo Masamura retired. While it may seem like he was ducking out just before a potential calamity, he did continue serving as Rensho, the regent's assistant. Many such transitions were prepared in advance, and their particular days chosen by yin-yang divination. His 18-year-old nephew Hojo Tokimune took the big chair as the new Shikken, and immediately ordered that Kyushu be fortified for defense. The courts of retired Emperor Gosaga and sitting Emperor Kameyama drafted a joint response which refused to submit the nation outright to Kublai Khan's authority, but contained vague language which left open the possibility of a compromise. They sent the letter to the shogunate for approval, but the Bakufu decided to discard the response and instead ordered the envoys to be sent away without an official answer. This bought them some time while they prepared their defenses. The Great Khan's frustration with sending his demands in the first place was now coupled with the difficulty his troops encountered while staging the invasion. The Korean Peninsula, once home to many large agricultural estates and a booming food-producing economy, had been ravaged by decades of Mongol destruction and slaughter. Their reduced population was barely able to produce enough resources to care for themselves, much less a host of warriors and their horses. The Mongol host itself was composed not only of Mongols, but Han Chinese, Jurchens, Khitans, and members of other various groups who had been subjugated. The commanders were Mongols, however, and they generally required their troops to fight in the Mongol way, with horse archery being the key component followed closely by heavy cavalry charges. Japanese accounts indicate they also had foot troops with long spears who fought in a rough phalanx formation. In the early stages of this invasion, the first soldiers sent to Korea to prepare quickly sent requests for imported food and supplies. Wagon loads of much-needed goods began regular trips from China, but the addition of this supply line meant more time was needed for the necessary preparations. Meanwhile, repeated attempts were made by ambassadors from Kublai Khan to be received by the leaders of Japan to present their letters from the Great Khan in person. These were summarily rejected, and by 1272 it was clear that the new emperor of China was not going to be dissuaded by mere refusal. The Bakufu sources on the peninsula assured them that preparations were underway, and that soldiers from the Yuan dynasty would be landing on their shores very soon. One of the reasons that information was so forthcoming from Korea was that the Bakufu had done something which nearly every Heian period emperor had failed to do, help Goryeo with their pirate problem. Relations between the two nations remained at a pretty friendly level throughout the shogunate's existence, and the intelligence which the Goryeo nobles passed along to Kamakura was invaluable. 
Regent Hojo Tokimune ordered for every Shugo and Jito in Kyushu to report for duty, and for every vassal of the shogunate who possessed land holdings on that island to travel there immediately, fully prepared to support defensive efforts. In 1274, a Mongol army embarked from Korea's southern coast with the mission of subduing the Japanese. William Wayne Ferris estimates that this army was 90,000 strong, a formidable force to be sure. They started by ravaging the smaller outlying islands north of Kyushu, Tsushima and Iki. The sacking of Tsushima has been the subject of a recent hit video game called Ghost of Tsushima, which I will absolutely pay money to play if it is ever ported to PC, hint, hint. The Mongols were met by defenders on both of those islands. 80 mounted warriors on Tsushima, and 100 samurai cavalry on Iki. Both groups were woefully outnumbered and easily crushed by the Mongol invaders. The civilian populations of those islands were not spared, but subjected to rape, mass execution, and desecration of their corpses. Yes, you heard that last part right. The women of Tsushima and Iki were killed, and then their hands pierced so that they could be tied together and hung from the deck of the Mongol ships as grim, horrifying decorations. The Mongol army made several successive landings on northern Kyushu, and engaged with numerous samurai armies. There was a huge difference in the way these two factions fought. As we discussed in the previous two episodes, the Mongol army was a disciplined, unified fighting force who used formations and group tactics to overcome their opponents. The samurai tended towards single combat, stepping forward from their warband to announce their ancestry and then fight against an equal who would step forward and do the same. In an account of the two forces' first meeting on Kyushu, it is written that a young samurai loosed a whistling arrow to mark the beginning of combat. The response from the Mongols was to laugh, strike the gong which signaled their command to attack, and crush the samurai warband with a massive heavy charge. The fighting of 1274 went very poorly for the Japanese defenders, as the UN army had, by this point, fully adopted the latest gunpowder technology. Long-distance rocket arrows, stonework grenades, and other such weaponry spread panic and disorder through the samurai ranks. Things were looking pretty desperate by October, when suddenly the UN army got back onto their boats and sailed back to Korea. Later historians claim that the Korean boat captains warned the Mongols of a coming storm, and that the invaders went back to their boats to avoid a nighttime ambush from samurai using the rain to cover their advance. The story goes that their fleet was destroyed in the subsequent typhoon. Many modern historians have questioned this account, however, due to how unseasonable it would be for a typhoon to appear so late into the year. William Wayne Ferris, in his book Heavenly Warriors, claims that the initial invasion force left suddenly and that any accounts of a divine storm were later inventions. I tend to trust his expertise in military matters, and I would only further observe that such sudden retreats were a common tactic of Mongol armies, especially the initial strike force whose objective was to soften the enemy for a follow-up conquest. The warriors of Japan would receive a respite from these invaders, who completely withdrew even from Tsushima and Iki. The following year, 1275, the Yuan dynasty would send yet another envoy to Dazaifu, demanding once more to have an audience with the nation's leaders. This time, the ambassador was immediately taken into custody and beheaded. 
The summary execution of a Mongol ambassador was usually the final act of defiant regimes who soon paid the price for their belligerence in the spilled blood of their people, and the shogunate had no illusions that the invasion of 1274 was the end of the matter. In fact, the Bakufu surprisingly made plans to go on the offensive. Most recountings of the Mongol invasions usually overlook this especially curious development of 1275. Not only was Hojo Tokimune and his government unwilling to back down to the demands of the Emperor of China, they were making plans for their own armies to cross the sea and invade Korea. I have my doubts as to whether these plans were taken seriously by Bakufu leadership. It is possible, though we don't know for certain, that the shogunate was trying to find a way to get more samurai into Kyushu to help defend the island against the next invasion, which was sure to come soon. New defense works were built on the northern side of Kyushu, as well as the eastern end of Honshu, including stone walls which they hoped might hinder the invaders or at least slow their progress overland. The second invasion of UN troops took place in May of 1281, when Kublai Khan raised two armies, one composed of 100,000 Chinese troops and another of 40,000 combined Mongol-Chinese-Korean. The smaller force, called the Eastern Route Army, raided Tsushima and then occupied Iki. A few weeks after, they struck at Hakata Bay but withdrew when they encountered the large wall which had been built across the northern part of Kyushu. They stuck to two smaller islands for the moment, called Shika and Noko. The 40,000-strong Eastern Route Army reportedly had to suffer an epidemic while they waited for the larger force to join with them so that they might make a massive incursion. Finally, in late June, the 100,000-strong Chinese army arrived at Iki and then made a massive naval advance toward Hizen, which is the westernmost of Kyushu's provinces. Under the cover of night, they met with fierce resistance from the samurai even while they were at sea, as smaller Japanese boats would sneak warriors aboard Mongol vessels who would then proceed to take the crew by surprise, kill as many as they could, then fall back to their ship and slip away. At the beginning of July, everything changed for both parties when a massive typhoon swept through the area and sank or scattered many Mongol vessels. The battles that ensued were mostly samurai bands mopping up the survivors who managed to find their way ashore. That is not to say that these engagements were easy victories, as the invaders were armed and, in some cases, had superior numbers. However, they were still fighting in unfamiliar territory, and the samurai were happy to make use of ambushes to overcome any other disadvantages they faced. The Mongol invasions of Japan would be strongly remembered in the national consciousness as a perilous time when the country was saved by the gods. While the Bakufu was coordinating with Dazaifu over which warriors to send where, the imperial court busied itself by visiting important shrines like the Grand Ise Shrine and praying earnestly for victory over the barbarians. The typhoon which so effectively disrupted the invasion was seen as an answer to those prayers, a divine wind. The Japanese term for divine wind is probably familiar to you, kamikaze. For many centuries after, it became a commonly held belief throughout the Japanese archipelago that the gods were protecting their land and would not allow invaders to defeat them. North of Japan, the Mongols also attempted to invade and conquer Sakhalin Island. Located just north of the Isle of Hokkaido, 
Sakhalin Island was, by the late 1200s, home to groups of Ainu people in the south, as well as Tungusic tribes, and a group called the Nivka on the island's northern stretch. The Mongols made an alliance with the Nivka people after some initial skirmishes, through which they became aware of the Ainu and joined the Nivka in their war upon them. The conflict lasted for decades, beginning in 1264 and finally concluding in 1308. The actual fighting was sporadic, but ferocious, with both sides suffering significant casualties while also managing to inflict enough harm on their opponent to maintain a stalemate status quo. By 1308, however, the leaders of the Sakhalin Ainu decided that the fighting was much more costly than submission. While technically the Sakhalin Ainu surrendered and paid tribute to the UN dynasty mostly in sable furs, this did not result in outright occupation like it did in Korea. The practical result was that the UN had a new trade partner, and that the various groups who populated Sakhalin lived together in peace for a time. The armies of Kublai Khan had far worse luck against the Dalviet and the Champa Confederation in the south. After the first invasion, both Dalviet and Cham agreed to a tributary relationship to the UN in which they would regularly pay tribute in trade goods. The UN dynasty, however, desired outright annexation of the land which is today known as Vietnam, so they invaded again in 1283, utilizing both land and naval routes to strike their enemies. In spite of a fiercely fought, protracted campaign against both polities, Kublai Khan could not get either nation to submit fully or surrender unconditionally. By 1288, he was accepting a tributary relationship from both factions once more, leaving him essentially right back where he started. As for Japan, many plans would be drawn up for a third invasion, but none would ever come to anything. The Mongols would never again set foot on Japanese soil, nor did the capital or the Bakufu need to fear further aggression. However, they did not know this at the time. The defensive works on Kyushu would continue to be maintained and expanded, and the presence of ready warriors for those defense works would be funded by the shogunate for many years after the great typhoon, the Kamikaze, had swept their enemies away. Next time, we will discuss what happened after Hojo Tokimune died in 1284, leaving the office to his son Hojo Saratoki, and explore how the Mongol invasions forever altered the political landscape of Japan. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. 